Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined by Rob Hunt of Linnae Holdings out in, I'm sure, much more lovely San Diego, California. And uh, we have our eminent producer, Dan Humiston, who's somewhere. So California, maybe Florida, Colorado. He's a man in motion, so it's hard to keep up with him. But he is here with us today. And uh, we're very happy to have you with us. We've got a fun show, trying to follow hard in the heels of Rob's uh, very formidable J-Rad show that uh, you know really took us off in a whole new direction. Uh, I was aided, unfortunately, <clears throat> by the uh, untimely, and for these kind of guys, it's always untimely passings of both David Crosby and Jeff Beck. And of course, by the time you guys hear this, will already be more than a week ago. But from when we're recording, it's in between when we last recorded, so we're talking about it today and, and we're going to find ways to feature these guys uh, and tell stories about them because they're American, uh, really not even American, just rock and roll worldwide legends. And when guys like this go, uh, duty demands that they get some recognition. So we're going to start you off with a, uh, a clip from a fun little jam that we'll talk more about in a minute. But all you need to know is that it was called David and the Dorks. So David and the Dorks, who the hell are these guys? Well, David is obviously David Crosby. And in this case, uh, the Dorks are Jerry, Phil, and Mickey. Um, and although the three of us could often be mistaken for him, we're, we're talking about these musicians today. And Rob, I don't know if you're familiar with David and the Dorks, but uh, Crosby got these guys to come and jam with him at the Matrix on December 15th, 1970. And uh, we're going to be featuring a few more of their tunes in a minute. That's I don't know what I love more, the fact that David Crosby's playing Birdsong with Jerry or that it's such an early version of it, it hasn't even been put out by them yet. Yeah, I love everything about it. <clears throat> I mean, this is a time when, when Crosby was hanging out with the band a lot, and those guys were all, you know, collaborating. Um, if nothing else, you know, Crosby hanging out at, at their respective homes and sort of bouncing around Mill Valley, doing stuff together. So it's amazing we haven't seen more collaborations with Crosby. But, uh, but yeah, I've been familiar with this one for a little while, and it's, it's always been something that's really special and really unique. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I was looking at a bunch of stuff leading up to today's show and found an article written by Melissa Icecan that says that in an interview with David Crosby about playing with the Grateful Dead, he admitted that it was very hard to adapt to a band with that much musical talent and that he didn't think he was good enough to do it. Notwithstanding the fact that he's basically, the story goes, the guy who came in and taught them all to harmonize for um, uh, Working Man's and American Beauty. But that's, I guess, a little bit of humbleness by Crosby. And he, he wasn't always uh, credited with being humble. Uh, but certainly in that case, uh, you know, he felt like maybe uh, it was a little bit more than he could, uh, he could handle. But as we listen to more of this, I, I think he holds it up with them very, very well. Yeah, I do too. And I think a lot of that is, uh, is Cros just trying to give some due to the Grateful Dead. I mean, for all the, uh, for all the discussion you've heard internally or, you know, read in, in Grateful Dead lore that, 
it was CSN that really helped the Grateful Dead learn how to harmonize. If you talk to the members of CSN, they always came back and said, oh, no, no, we just kind of gave them some pointers. And those guys already had it. We just uh, filled in some, some holes for them. So, you know, I think there's a, a great deal of mutual respect and, and, again, very different styles of music where, you know, CSN was really going after the folk rock genre uh, that they stuck with throughout their, their career. And the Grateful Dead were, at the time, you know, more of a psychedelic act that moved towards folk rock uh, with Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. So a little, a little different um, kind of directions at that time. But, you know, again, a lot like the cross-pollination that was happening in L.A. and the Laurel Canyon area, uh, Marin County and obviously the Haight-Ashbury was, was a burgeoning place for a lot of great musicians uh, at that time. So you know, I love the collaboration. It is so much fun. And, you know, I'm assuming that anybody who's listening to this show long ago heard uh, of David Crosby's recent passing. And, you know, I, I'm not really sure where to begin when you talk about a guy like that. He was, he and, and Graham Nash and Stephen Stills and, and, and Neil Young both with them, and of course Neil on his own, are such integral parts of the, you know, the, like the beginnings of, you know, the real modern rock and roll era, starting with their performance at Woodstock, and we'll be sampling a little bit of that towards the end of the show today. And then, you know, taking it all the way up until Neil had finally dropped out for good. And after, you know, an even longer period of time, the tensions between Crosby and Stills and Nash just got a little too hard and, and, and they all kind of went their separate ways. And there's a lot of skeletons in Crosby's closet about that. And I don't really think that today is a day we need to go and visit those too much. I was very impressed with both Graham Nash and Stephen Stills and uh, Neil Young when they were uh, asked to, you know, provide statements uh, after David's passing. And Although each one of them acknowledged the rough periods of time they went through with David, they were each, you know, made it a point to, to emphasize uh, all the beautiful music that they made together and the great times that they had and how exciting it was to be where they were at, at that point in, in history and, um, you know, just nothing but respect, which is what rock and roll fans want to hear. You know, we all assume that from time to time guys in bands have hiccups and troubles. We've seen great bands dissolve because of it, but... Uh, you know, in a moment like that, nobody would want Stephen Stills coming out and, and taking swipes at Crosby, just like I don't think Crosby would back at them. And, you know, it kind of leaves us all with a, you know, maybe a fuzzy, warm feeling. But, you know, if you ever heard those guys harmonize live or, you know, on recordings, and I was lucky enough to do both, they did leave you with a warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah, you know, look, adding to that, I think that Crosby is one of the first ones to uh, to acknowledge that a lot of the uh, turbulence in their relationships was of his own making. You know, there's a, a fantastic interview that happened relatively recently with, with Howard Stern, where, you know, Crosby went through and discussed a lot of it and said, you know, look, I, I insulted one of their, their wives or girlfriends. You know, I did something else that was uh, irreparable with, with someone else. And then, you know, within weeks, um, Stern interviewed Neil Young as well. And, you know, Neil acknowledged, like, look, you know, I, I have a, a great deal of respect for Cros, and there's no one that loves music as much as that guy does. And he was there for the song, like you know, everything else. Take everything else away from the guy, and music was his absolute love and priority. And everything he did throughout his career, all the way to the end, is you know, love of music. But you know, when Stern asks, "Is, is there a chance you'd ever play together?" You know, Neil is pretty much like, you know, no. I mean, <laughs> categorically, no. We're we're, we're done. And uh, you know, if I. If we never, you know, speak to one another again, it's it, it, it's okay by my book. But while at the same time acknowledging that that Crosby was, you know, an absolutely um, incredible musician, a great guy to play with, it, you know, and I've heard conflicting things. You know, there's people like Steve Silverman out there that we're still hoping to get on the show, who's great, great friends with Crosby, I mean, like really, really close friends with Crosby, 
And, and it's always a terrific thing. There's a lot of young musicians that got a chance to play with Crosby in the last couple of years that came back and said, what an amazing experience. And there's a lot of guys I know in the music industry that, you know, after Crosby passed, were posting things online about just what amazing, unique experiences. Like, uh, shout out to, my, to an old friend, Bob Kennedy, who, who did some work with, uh, with Crosby, and uh, Tony Hume, who did some work with David Crosby. Those guys came back and said, like, one of the most special things that they could say they've done in their lives is having the opportunity to either go out on a tour with Crosby or, you know, do work with Crosby, where, you know, they're kind of expecting the worst and, and found the best, you know. And I, I read a story about, I can't remember um, which person posted about, you know, someone that was on tour, I think it was Reed Genauer from, um, from Strange Folk, who had his dog on tour with, with Cros and Crosby's dog, or excuse me, his dog got into, like, Crosby's uh, dressing room and expected just, you know, the, the, the ire. And instead, it was like, ah, you know, no problems. I love dogs, you know. So, so you, you never know. There's always like this perception of what you expect people to be, and, and the reality may be something completely different. And perhaps the, the personality conflicts that exist with people you've played with for years manifests itself in, in a way that's a long-term relationship. It doesn't, you know, um, percolate when you're just spending, you know, sort of finite amounts of time with, with that same person. Like, they, So it's, it's really, really hard to say. But what I'll say is that as a fan of music, you know, Thank you, David Crosby. You know, thank you for, for just the amazing amounts of music that you put out all the way until the last years of your life where, you know, he kept it fresh. Like some of his recent albums, I think, are as good as anything he's ever done. Like the, the guys, he, he consistently amazed me at the quality of his songwriting. Yeah, uh, there's, there's no denying it. Um, and nobody's musical library is complete without a couple of CSN and sometimes Y albums. And, you know, we can all debate and, you know, tell you which ones are our favorites. Just go by four-way street, you know, pretty much captures it all. It's great. It's live. Capture, capture their uh, appearance at Woodstock. It's great. But it, but it's really fun. But swinging back to David and the, the dorks for a minute, and God love Jerry and Phil and Mickey for going along with that name. Here's the next clip I want to play, and, and this is a, uh, a traditional Birds tune uh, that David was involved with originally, but, you know, being played uh, in a little bit more of a Grateful Dead style. Dan, can you spin that one for us? that tune i've always loved that tune and you know a lot of it i always just think of as a bird's tune but of course cross was an integral part of the birds and, and what i love about this cut of eight miles high is you know when you listen to eight miles high on the album it's a beautiful song but to some degree it, it i don't want to say it sounds like a pop song but it's got the the timing and length of like you know a, a four and a half minute tune that you know they would that could fit on uh, am or new fm radio back in the day when it came out and it was very heavy on the vocals and all of the harmonizing, and it's it's really astounding. 
And so when they're playing this, I'm really wondering how they're going to get to all the, that vocal range with, with, quite frankly, Jerry and Phil. Um, and they, they solve it by never singing. They just jam it out. And, you know, the, the beginning of that jam we were heard is, is very distinctly eight miles high. But when they get to the point where they should start screaming eight miles high with beautiful vocals, they don't. They just keep jamming it out and they keep playing it a little bit longer. And that kind of surprised me because I had never really been too much of a, a student of the birds. But when I went back on line to try and find live versions of them playing it, most of them seemed to follow that mode. So, you know, maybe there was a little bit of the Grateful Dead influence back on them. Yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, they certainly were known for being more composed uh, musicians than, than jam musicians, but it doesn't mean they didn't have it in them. You know, I've, I've certainly seen uh, videos. I've, I've seen those guys live enough times to know they want to let it loose, they can. Um, so it's completely dependent. But I think when I think anyone that gets on stage with members of the Grateful Dead gets on that stage knowing that they can kind of throw their rule book out the window and start thinking about, you know, how they're going to improvise and, and, you know, start thinking about much more of a jazz interpretation of some of the music they do rather than just like the stage uh, versions. And that Eight Miles High is a great example of that. Oh, yeah, that's excellent and well put. And I think you're absolutely right, you know, that uh, if you're going to play with the Grateful Dead, you have to be prepared for Jerry and Phil especially, you know, to, to kind of wander off with it a little bit. And you know, uh, I give David credit. He sticks right there with him. But uh, and, you know, he's he's more typically known for his vocals than for his guitar playing. Not that he wasn't also an excellent guitar player, um, but he may not have been a student of it quite in the same way that Garcia was. But, you know, he's out there. He does well. They all do well. When uh, Stephen Stills played with them back in, uh, I think it was April of 1984 at Brendan Byrne, he hung with them really well. And afterwards, his quote was something about, uh, God, I wish I had it in front of me because it was great. Something about a uh, a big garage band just doing the do all over your head or something like that, you know. And he was like, just it's. They all have that same reaction, and and I guess I can understand a little bit where David Crosby is coming from. I mean, I can't understand it the way he does, but uh, look, he's in a band that always was very tight vocally and very tight musically. And while they do have the capacity to jam. It's not quite as the same as, you know, being with the dead where maybe they'll go into the next verse or maybe they'll break off for 20 minutes. And, you know, to be relevant and I guess to feel like you're being relevant and part of it, you kind of have to talk the talk and be, and be ready to be ready to rock and roll with it. And, you know, David Crosby has done more than enough for himself and with his bands to and he doesn't need any extra, um, you know, credit from you or I or even from the Grateful Dead. He's just uh, out there blowing our minds that is true and uh and doing it for a long time if you think about when that guy's career started you know he's he's 50 plus years of being a relevant musician you know a very relevant musician for that entire period with you know new uh new people wanting to play with him all the time it was never a question of could he find bandmates it was always a question of you know who he'd pick and that was what was super super cool about it i think so um other musicians who interacted with him, who he influenced. I know that, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, he had a very close relationship with Joni Mitchell. Although, interestingly, I have not seen any statements by her yet. I don't know if she's making statements these days or not, but um, uh, she was influential in his life. And, of course, he's the uh, uh, the birth father of Melissa Etheridge's two children. One of them, unfortunately, passed away, losing his own battle with, with addiction. But, you know, I remember Melissa Etheridge, uh, when people were asking her and, you know, David Crosby can be kind of crazy. Why him? And her quote was something like, you know, I don't think there's a more beautiful person who I'd rather have be the father of my children or, you know, something along those lines where we all said, oh, wow, that's really cool. And um, 
you know, he, he's just, uh, he was a big man on the scene with a, a lot of connections into a lot of different people. It was all very, very cool. And with multiple different outfits, you know, not just a solo career, not just CSN, but, you know, as you said, the birds and uh, Buffalo Springfield as well. You know, he'll end up going down as, you know, one of the only guys I think nominated into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame multiple times. And with, with great reason to be, you know, how many different hits, how many different times was he there? I think he's one of the only musicians to have played uh, Altamont, um, Woodstock, and Monterey Pop, which is, you know, a huge, uh, a, a huge thing in its own right. Definitely. Right. I mean, that's true, because you think about those shows, and they all have documentaries made about them and all the number of acts that played. And, and, you know, certainly for Woodstock, I would say that they're one of the highlights. And again, we're going to get to a Woodstock clip of theirs towards the end of the show. But I just remember, you know, I finally got that album and listening to the whole thing over and over, but always making my way back to, you know who I listen to a lot? I listen to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and 10 years after on that album. I love Elvin Lee. That's a great, great stuff, too. But uh, just just to throw that out there. But, um, Dan, I think you got one more uh, clip of the dorks, and... Uh, this is going to be significant because it's we're, we're going to get to hear a lot of different things on here. It's Bertha. It's 1970. Uh, I don't think that the album, well, it never comes out on an album, but it doesn't really get released to public knowledge until uh, the Grateful Dead live album comes out, uh, that, where they took the cuts from 1971. So that's probably at least a couple of years away. And here's Jerry uh, test driving Bertha. Uh, with a little help from uh, David Crosby, and be sure to listen to those harmonizing vocals on the uh, Really Had to Move lyrics. beat that that's so good <clears throat> it really is so good makes you like realize just you know how, how tight those guys were to be able to to harmonize on on parts of bertha like that again even if they didn't play live together uh, all that often they certainly played together you know frequently they certainly hung out with each other enough you know obviously garcia was was well known for playing the intro to uh, to teach your children and uh was listed on deja vu as a spiritual uh muse or spiritual leader for that uh for that album so, you know, there's a, a great deal of collaboration between those guys. So, you know, like, imagine just hanging out in Marin, being at, you know, Mickey's Ranch in Nevada or being at the Stinson Beach House and, you know, like, Cross just shows up and comes over to start hanging out. And at the time, I think it was more than just Crosby. It was, you know, Graham and Steven were, were hanging out with those guys, too. But to, to have those times where those guys were all sort of hanging and partying with each other and teaching each other different things or just jamming kind of like the way we see in Festival Express where, you know, musicians just getting together and, and playing with one another... 
Cross certainly knew the songs. You know, he certainly knew what, what he was playing and, you know, what they were doing and what they were writing. And, uh, you know, there's there's certainly times where, you know, they'd be working on stuff in a studio together or have studio time, you know, very close to one another. So it's, as I said, amazing to me that this didn't happen as a collaboration more often based on the closeness of, uh, of the friendship among musicians. You know, what's really amazing you say that. I did a lot of searching around. Not only did they not actually, you know, play a lot together, the, the instance of Stephen Stills I mentioned and maybe I'm sure a few others scattered around, but they were rarely on the same bill together. I can only find about three or four instances of them on the same bill. And, and one of them happened to be July of 1989, I believe. It was a show in Pittsburgh that I got to go to. I was got assigned to take a deposition there on Monday and talk the partner into letting me fly out the night before so I'd be good and fresh for the deposition, not quite telling him that I was going to see the dead at uh, Three Rivers. And uh, Crosby, Sills & Nash were the opening act. And they came out and they played a tremendous set. And, you know, then the dead came on and played a set that was so good. It wound up, I believe it's live from the vault number four. But, but it wasn't like anyone came out to play with the dead or vice versa. It wasn't like Jerry was out there playing with them, which is correct. You know, oftentimes you're hoping that a, uh, an opening act is going to come out and play with them or they're going to be invited out to play with them. You know, you'd think that it would make more sense to have one of the guys on acoustic guitar come out and playing with the Grateful Dead than, than otherwise. You know, I don't know if Jerry come out with a, an electric, you know, maybe, maybe go out with an acoustic himself. But, you know, those are the collaborations that you kind of always hope for. You know, it's, I would much rather have seen a collab there than a collab with Steve Miller. You know, so it's uh, it, it, always interesting to me kind of who gets the nod and why they get the nod and why other ones don't. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, very, very little in the way of cross-pollination over their careers of sharing bills. Definitely. But, you know, look, everybody does what they do and they got their reasons. Not for you and I to wonder too much, maybe a little bit, but we're never going to answer those questions. Before we move on with that, I just, I, did you see this article that just came out recently about the, uh, well, not recently, just today, because there was just uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing today on tickets and ticket scalping? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Ticketmaster, the, the Taylor Swift uh, debacle, huh? The Taylor Swift fiasco, exactly. And I'm just laughing because, you know, how many years did we all mail in? Well, that was the dead. It wasn't Ticketmaster. But, you know, you'd mail in and try and get tickets for the dead and you couldn't get, there was nobody to yell at. You just moved on and went to the next show. But, I mean, I get it. I understand it, right? If 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 brokers have a way to come in and clear out, you know, or, or VIPs get the first five thousand tickets and brokers, and then they start selling them to the rest of the world, it's not really fair. How do you enforce it? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm I'm so over trying to figure those things out because nothing's fair anymore. I mean, as a skier, it's not fair that like lift tickets cost two hundred bucks, and you know, as a, as a golfer, like you know, what do uh, what do uh, greens fees cost? You know, and which courses can you get on? Life isn't fair anymore. Like everything at this point, it, it, if you've got cash, you win. If you don't, you lose. It's it's pretty much that simple. The the aftermarket it used to be the bands would try to make things affordable for their fans. They don't care about that anymore. And then, by the way, that includes Taylor Swift and that includes everyone else. I mean, all these guys now have their VIP areas. They all have you know pre sales. What they're trying to stop is the aftermarket where you know scalpers make more money and the, and the musicians don't get that money. But that's not about being fair to the fan. That's about being, you know, more judicious to themselves. You know, it's a, how do we control all of this? And for a while, you know, you were watching Live Nation uh, you know, do a lot of that work by, you know, having verified resales on, uh, on their website. But even that's just glorified scalping through a digital process where they're still taking a VIG, right? So it's, you know, do I have that much sympathy at this point? It's like, look, I, I know there's been a lot of bands over the last 30 years that have tried to, to kind of stop this, and there have been certain bands with enough clout like the Grateful Dead or Fish 
that being able to say, hey, we want to be able to sell tickets, you know, directly. But, you know, if, if the Grateful Dead were, were playing today, I mean, there's a huge difference in price between Dead & Co. tickets and there were for Grateful Dead tickets. This is no longer about the fan anymore. Let's be very, very clear that everyone in, the, you know, in Dead & Co. has now made the decision that they are trying to maximize every single dollar they can on, on concert sales. And again, and for a while, it was like, oh, well, you know, we just don't get the same album sales anymore. So it used to be that, you know, tours were to support an album and the album's where we made our money. And now it's like, well, you know, the albums don't sell on streaming, so we've got to make our money playing live. Okay, great. But I mean, the fact of the matter is we are getting gouged. Part of the reason I don't see nearly as much music anymore as I used to is because of the cost of tickets. You know, I, I remember when tickets hit like 30 bucks for dead shows and I was pissed. And now if the Grateful Dead would be playing, they'd be 300 for a decent seat. So it's... It, it, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this, but to say that there is nothing fair at all anymore across the board for being a fan of a, of a band. And while I absolutely agree with that, at the same time, I it makes me very sad because, you know, the the there's, let there be song to fill the air, right? I mean, music is for the people. The Grateful Dead say, tape our shows. Once we're done with it, it's yours. And and it, it it's while I don't begrudge those guys anything, you know, they're at a stage where they're getting old and, they, you know, if they can still capitalize financially for themselves and their families, they don't need my permission to do it by any means. But we talked about this last year when uh, Playing in the Sand was canceled at the last minute because you know, there was so much money on the line that they, the, the performers and the producers, you know, who were making the call were really waiting as long as possible, you know, to, to not have to... to to refund all of that money and, and, and give it all back, you know, and now Dead & Co. is selling their tickets 10 months in advance, which is not unique. Other bands do it too. But, you know, people are, you know, you're putting up money that, that just to let them sit there and, and continue to draw interest on it for 10 extra months. And, you know, when you see this, it, it kind of flies in the face of the, you know, free rock and roll spirit that at least the Grateful Dead are so closely associated with. And Crosby, Stills, and Nash for that matter. And yes, Fish to some degree as well. But, Everybody's got a right to make a profit, but when it gets to the point where it, it's such an expensive commodity that you really have to be either very, very well healed or very, very well connected or both to get in to see a show, that just really takes all the fun out of it, I think, to some degree. Who are these people that are buying all these tickets? Are they really Taylor Swift fans? Are they going to go and really enjoy themselves? Or are they just going to say, I was at the Taylor Swift show? We used to, you know, yell at, we'd see people at the Dead show who were clearly not deadheads. And, you know, look, go and enjoy yourself or whatever. But, you know, it's like there's people out there who would give their, you know, left arm to be in this show right now. So, you know, appreciate it. You know, same thing with sports scalping, right? People just want to see and be seen at, at the Super Bowl or the World Series. Do they even know who's on the field playing? Do they know anything that the average fan knows? It, it, it doesn't matter. It's status. It, it's I was there. You know, it's, it has nothing to do with, with liking the, the, the band or the music or anything else. It's if that's the place to be, you want to be able to say that you were there. You know, like I, Willie Nelson's got his 90th birthday coming up. That's just announced at the Hollywood Bowl that Bob Weir's playing at, right? Who do you think is going to be filling that place? Do you think it's going to be Willie Nelson fans? I can almost be certain that it's not. If it was, they'd be doing it in Austin. They wouldn't be doing it in Los Angeles. Right. So it's, uh, it, you know, you look at the, the musicians that are on that bill and everyone put out almost an identical statement on Twitter about how honored they were to be you know, on this thing, which was obviously like, OK, here's your uh, your talking point. Put this out on all social media and let's sell this thing out in minutes. And if you look at how many people are coming on that, that bill, there's no way anyone's playing more than one or two songs. And it's probably going to be these little collabs of like four or five musicians at a time. But no one's getting like their own time on this thing. It's, this whole thing is a misnomer of like, like I, I saw someone sort of making fun of it today on Twitter, 
where like everyone's going to play two songs and there'll be like you know 50 people on stage to sing on the road the road again they'll call it you know and, and that's right that's exactly what's going to be and they're going to charge people you know three four hundred bucks a ticket and the aftermarket on that's going to be even more because it's the hollywood bowl all the boxes will be taken by record execs and by you know like it'll, it'll be whoever's got the cash to say I, i'm connected or i've got the cash to like to be there where i can bring my friends be like we were there for willie's 90th that's all it is you know, it's like and doing no disservice to Willie. Willie's, you know, he's an American institution, but it's not his fans that are going to that show. And they, I'm sure they'll put out a box set, and I'm sure they'll put out a video, and I'm sure they'll put out... The revenue from this thing's going to go on for the next 10 years and be feeding Willie's grandchildren for, for you know, generations to come. Great-grandchildren at this stage, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, but, I mean look, having, like... Being on Willie's uh, cannabis board for a brief period of time and spending a fair amount of time with you know the, the whole organization that's surrounding Willie, you know Willie feels a great deal of responsibility, much the way that Jerry did, to support a ton of different people. You know, it's like this kid's got braces, this kid's got college, this kid's got this. Willie's on the hook to like you know keep everyone kind of uh, out there and, and moving. And at age ninety, you know he doesn't have any chances left. So okay, if this is all going to the estate of Willie Nelson in in the long term, you know fantastic. But look, this is. This is not a concert for, for, for Willie Nelson fans. It's really not. No, I think you're right. And, and that is the unfortunate part about it, right? That the people, what, what would have happened if May 8th, 1977, all the tickets went to record execs and, you know, big shots? Right, right. And no deadheads yeah, yeah. were there. I mean, what makes this show so great is that the people who are sitting in the audience appreciate it and respond to it. Yeah, I mean, and by the way, like, this is going to get into like a much more like, you know, um, What's the right word for it? It's a conversation that you obviously can't um, you know, pinpoint, but would they have played the same show if that was the case? You know, would the quality of the show have been nearly as good? And, you know, I can say that, uh, you know, there's definitely times where the music plays the band, right? And, you know, if you look at some of my favorite shows throughout history, you know, for The Grateful Dead, most of the nights I think are amazing. It's because the audience was so fired up also. You know, it's just, it, it, there's times where there's an electric feeling in the, uh, in, in the audience. And that's true for any band. Like, the, most bands' best nights or when there's something else that's going on in the air that just goes, this is the one, you know, like we're, we're here. It's kind of like, you know, for, for Dan and I, it's kind of like catching a bluebird pow day where all of a sudden, you know, you aren't expecting, you know, nine inches overnight and you're expecting two and all of a sudden, you know, almost a foot comes in and, uh, and, this, and the clouds clear and, and no one else is up there. And you sort of like, those are the days where like everyone gets to the lodge at the end of the day is high-fiving and hugging and buying each other beers. You know, it, it's rare that it happens, but when it does, there's a certain magic that, that goes along with that. And that's why I feel about, you know, right, right place, right time with concerts. And that's not when there's record execs in the audience. It's not when there's, you know, like that's why like a lot of New York shows or LA shows where it is just, you know, to be seen. Uh, it, the, yeah, it, it's, it's hard. It is. And we're going to come up with one exception. And I know you're running out of time here, but I just want to throw this out before you take off. We're about to feature now. We're about to turn our attention to Jeff Beck. And Jeff is... is is a yeah. legend in a whole completely different way, but as much of free, yeah. if there's somebody out there who didn't grow up playing air guitar to freeway jam, I want to know who that is because that's, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's statement. Just, you know. Absolutely. And um, so, of course, it's not just enough on this show to know about Jeff Beck, but try and time into the Grateful Dead, and there's a great story, June, 5th, June 14th, 1968, at the uh, Fillmore East in New York, uh, there was a... Double performance, a, a early show and a late show, with Jeff Beck as the opening act and the Grateful Dead as the second act. The early show 
was all populated by the record execs because they were all coming out to hear the Jeff Beck group. This was one of their coming out parties with Rod Stewart on vocals. And, you know, these guys were loaded. And the story is that Beck blew everyone out. The concert was an amazing tour de force. Everyone still talks about it. And everybody who was at the early show said, in fact, they blew the dead out. When the dead came out after that, you know, it was the dead and a bunch of record execs and Jeff Beck had just burned up the stage and they just never really got it going again uh, after that. However, the late show, Jeff Beck had kind of shot his wad with the, the early show and the dead bounced back. And we're going to be playing some clips from that in a minute because they everybody says their, their late show took care of matters once and for all. They just, they came down and kind of, you know, threw the gauntlet down and said, you're awesome, dude, but this is our venue. That's a great, great story. It's a lot of fun. It's, and it's great how almost any musician, if you just dig a little bit, they're connected to the Grateful Dead one way or another. It's a great thing. Especially the great ones. You know, the great ones over the last 50 years, there's, there's some connection. It's true. Very, very true. Very true. So the, the next clip we've got, if you've got another minute to keep listening with us. Yeah, it, let's hear it. Is, um, I could not find a copy of the Jeff Beck show from June 14th, 68. All the articles say it's one of those ghost concerts that either were there or not, but no tape exists, whether that's true or not. And they're just holding it to put out a box set next year. Uh, we'll find out. But I couldn't find it. So I went searching around for some Jeff Beck group music and found a great clip, a later day Jeff Beck group clip with Rod Stewart coming back and joining them again, September 27th, 2019 from the aforementioned Holiday Bowl. And Dan, go ahead and spin this because this is a perfect, this is a perfect tune to drop in for today's show. So yeah, your your ears are not deceiving you. Uh, that is Rod Stewart with his very, very gravelly voice belting out the lyrics to Morning Dew and Jeff Beck uh, coming in and providing a little bit of uh, his own guitar magic to it. It's a You can go and find it online and it, it's, it's really worth watching. It, it's only about a total four, four and a half minute clip. And I was really hoping that there would be that huge crescendo building guitar solo at the end, but not so much. Uh, but this clip I thought was really, really good and you know, kind of a great way uh, to tie Jeff back in with uh, the Grateful Dead today. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's terrific. And I love hearing other uh, people cover Bonnie Dobson and, you know, Grateful Dead tunes as well. So uh, anyone anyone that's covering that tune, it, it's no secret out there that, uh, that Larry and I and now Dan Humiston are all huge fans of Morning Dew. Uh, so getting a chance to hear Rod Stewart singing it, it's uh, it's super cool. So uh, I do apologize, Larry and, and audience. I do have to jump today early, but um, this is a terrific show. And, you know, celebrating the life of David Crosby and Jeff Beck, while amazing to do, is also with, with terrible sadness that, uh, that we do it, having lost, you know, two amazing musicians so early in 2023. So may, may the rest of uh, 
this generation stay alive for the rest of the year and continue to play great music for us. But, uh, but I do appreciate you putting it together to celebrate two of the greats. So thanks with that. I'll see everyone next week. Thank you, Rob. We appreciate it. And we will look forward to talking to you next week. Keeping with this, uh, Jeff Beck theme, uh, since we couldn't play him from uh, June 14th, 68, but we can play The Grateful Dead from June 14th, 1968. And in fact, we can play The Grateful Dead from June 14th, 1968, The Late Show, uh, when they really blew the doors off. Now, I'm going to warn you all in advance uh, that this is not a very great-sounding recording. It's uh, not tremendous uh, quality, uh, very, very scratchy. Uh, but when I was reading the comments, I saw one that really stuck with me, which deadheads have... Uh, we've we've been trained our whole lives to kind of blank out on the scratchy part and focus instead on the music and kind of hear the the beauty through the noise. So I hope you'll do this because it's it's a it's a great version of the eleven and this is uh, the Grateful Dead from the Late Show on June fourteenth, sixty eight, after Jeff Beck Group opened for him. know that uh, the 11 is one of my favorite great favorite grateful dead tunes and that's just a great version of it and yes if it was a clearer uh clearer version of it uh, uh it would even sound more majestic but you know that's uh that's a great thing about these musicians they inspire one another and i'm sure there was probably a little bit of friendly rivalry going on and after the early show people blowing jerry a little bit of shit the jeff beck trio had come out or the jeff beck group there was four of them uh, had come out and, and really blown them away and uh, maybe they went back and just said, okay, let's uh, kick everyone's ass. Or maybe they were just the dead, and that's when uh, you know it all came together for them. But either way, that show up from June 14, 68 is also available, and I would very, very much recommend uh, anyone uh, taking the time to listen to it because the entire show uh, sounds as good as that 11, and it's, it's, it's really a lot of fun. We do have a, a little bit more music, but just to touch a little bit on the marijuana side of things, um, and now with Rob gone, I can kind of dive through these, although, uh, quite frankly, I always like having Rob handy because he is so knowledgeable on all of this stuff, and I'm sure if I say anything wrong, he'll quickly correct me next week. Um, so you can keep score at home. But there's a lot going on at the state level right now in the marijuana world, and it's important to focus on it because for the most part, it's not really the states that we think of uh, when we think of medical or adult use marijuana. So we're not talking today about California, Washington, Illinois, for that matter, other states. What's going on in Kansas? What do we say is going on in Kansas? Everybody always jokes, if you're driving home uh, with marijuana from Colorado, for God's sakes, don't go down I-70 and go through Kansas because they will pull you over and they will sniff around in your car and they will do all those things to you. 
Um, and whether they really will or not, it's just a, a very good note of caution that if you happen to be driving east on I-70, leaving the state of Colorado, a professional legal tip, you may not want to be carrying any cannabis in your car with you. However, they uh, are trying to put together a medical marijuana program and they're not getting a lot of support. And interestingly enough, the governor of Kansas came out in her annual state of the state address uh, to really uh, blast this law. Uh, that's Governor Laura Kelly. And, you know, she told a story about a terminally ill man uh, who was uh, using medical marijuana uh, primarily to help uh, mitigate his symptoms uh, that he was having from all the medications he was on and the progression of the uh, cancer in his system. And twice his uh, hospital room was raided by police. Um, and he was arrested. He wasn't taken away, obviously, because he was ill, but he was cited. And there were uh, court hearings on his case. And uh, she pointed out how ridiculous this is, um, that someone who's benefiting medically uh, from medical marijuana and uh, at the same time is being arrested by a government whose position is that marijuana has no recognizable medical value. So when you want to be that obtuse about things, like the state of Kansas was being, it's refreshing quite frankly, to have the governor, uh, the, the leader of the state, you know, compare her to Christy Noem, for God's sakes, where the people of South Dakota approved medical marijuana, and then Christy had her administration sue to get it reversed, and they were successful on some little technical glitch about how it was worded on the, uh, the ballot. Uh, the governor thinking she knows best and will be the first to tell you, unfortunately. And here, um, Governor Kelly stepping up and saying, look, people, this is really, really stupid People can make enough jokes about Kansas being backwards, but we don't have to really live it out that way. Uh, let's get with the program and kind of catch up with what the rest of the world is doing. You know, it's going to be up. It's, it's obviously a very GOP heavy state and uh, it's going to be up to GOP leaders. Now, we've talked in the past that this is not particularly a partisan issue uh, because both righties and lefties, red and blue, Democrats, Republicans all like to smoke marijuana. And we've talked about the celebrities who will sit there and rail all day against the left and then go home and light up. So it has nothing to do with that. Um, it has to do with political advantage and who's going to score points. And, uh, you know, if, 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 an, if an issue is made to look uh, like it's a left-leaning issue, such as marijuana, then that's going to be enough for, I would imagine, enough Republicans to say, nope, we're not going to go that route just on general principles. Um, but to be fair, um, when uh, representatives um, from Republican states in Congress put forward uh, their own legalization plans, uh, the Democrats weren't very quick to jump on board that bandwagon either, uh, because again, Schumer wants the credit to go to the Democrats, McConnell wants it to go to the Republicans, and while they all play a game of uh, this you know, political volleyball with this very, very important issue, the rest of us uh, who make a living in this industry uh, are the ones who really have to, I don't want to say suffer because I don't think anybody's necessarily fully suffering because of it, but our lives are being made a lot more difficult. And we, you know all the issues, deductions that you can't take, banking services that you can't get, uh, bankruptcy protection that's not available to you. Um, you know, whether or not you could sue to enforce certain contracts if you want to try to go to the federal level. Uh, if you're suing somebody from out of state, you don't want to have to go through their state court system. Uh, intellectual property protection and all of these things that are just routinely withheld from this growing industry that's growing so fast that we see sales of businesses that are very close to 10 figures big. Uh, this is the same as any other industry now. This is no longer just a quick little upstart industry. Uh, marijuana is here to stay regardless, I think, of um, you know what any of its opponents uh, might like to try and do. And uh, again, it, it's very impressive for Governor Kelly uh, to really step forward and, uh, and and make a point to her to her state legislators uh, that they need to get with the program. Whether they'll do it or not is a completely different story. 
we'll certainly keep an eye on it. And if it happens, we'll be the first to report it and be very, very happy to report it. So, um, and you know, look, Missouri just approved adult use. So if Missouri's approving adult use and Kansas is right next door, then they're, they're going to have the same problem that Missouri had with Illinois. All the Kansas residents just drive right across the border. And if you live in Kansas City, Kansas, going from Kansas City, Kansas to Kansas City, Missouri, it's only a couple of blocks. You know, you're, you're not you're not talking a heavy road trip or anything. And I'm sure the people there know how to get around very well, keep off of main streets, not really worry too much if they're driving back home with some wonderful legal uh, Missouri marijuana under their belts, uh, where all that good tax money is going to Missouri and not to the fine folks of Kansas. So, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Minnesota, a state that gets knocked from time to time, they were a medical program that only believed in tinctures and stuff like that. But they're now actually moving towards a legalization bill. And they've actually just had their first Senate committee hearing um, as they try to move forward with that. Will it happen in Minnesota? Certainly hope so. Minnesota, uh, certainly the Twin Cities area, has a, a, a well-deserved reputation for being a little bit of a liberal bastion when it comes to lots of uh, the issues of the day. And uh, marijuana is no different. The rest of Minnesota, like many states in the Midwest outside of the urban areas, uh, tends to tilt a little bit more rural. And so there's always a little bit of pushback about that. Uh, but Minnesota is an important state. It's, um, you know, along the, the states up along the northern end of the country, uh, when you get to the middle of the country, uh, Minnesota is clearly the big one. It's uh, It's got the political clout. It's got the people. It's got the tourist attractions. Um, and it's a, it's a perfect place uh, to have legalized marijuana and where people can go and certainly the residents and anyone who decides to come to town. And uh, it will be wonderful to see if they can get that to go ahead and, um, and pass it through. We turn our attention to Delaware. We're there. The lawmakers have approved a marijuana legalization bill in, in committee uh, one day after a regulatory proposal uh, advance. So Delaware is taking positive steps. Uh, again, you know, uh, an eastern seaboard city that sees all of the marijuana business going to uh, Massachusetts and soon to New York and New Jersey. And heck, why shouldn't marijuana be getting a cut of that? And it should. Um, and now they're going to put themselves in a position where hopefully uh, they're going to be able to make it into a, uh, a very strong and successful market. And then uh, we have Massachusetts and New York, where we already have adult use passed. Massachusetts is up and running. We even talked last week about Massachusetts suffering, suffering that wonderful problem uh, when they've reached so many people in the state that they hit an oversaturation point and sales start to go backwards. And so Massachusetts is seeing uh, sales in a kind of a downward slump right now. But I believe that that cycles out like it does with anything and that they will be back stronger than ever. And New York, that it just isn't quite up and running yet, although... I love how they do things in New York. You can get delivery. You still can't get delivery in a lot of states with adult use where they do have op up and operating dispensaries. In New York, they're not even that far along yet, but you can get home delivery. God bless them. But in both of those states now, lawmakers are pushing forward uh, uh, drug decriminalization bills. So that's another part of all of this. It's not just making the product legal. Uh, but it's also decriminalizing and going back and allowing people to uh, expunge certain prior convictions and arrests for uh, activity that we're now uh, legalizing and allowing people to go out and make profits off of. And, you know, these other people are, are we always talk about those being the people, you know, on whose backs and shoulders this industry was created. And, I'm, you know, yes, some of them were growers and some of them were uh, 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 dealers and, and sellers of the product. 
but it's the casual user. Without them, there's nobody to sell the product to. There's nobody for the for the middleman to sell the product to. And it, you know, the users would go out and smoke, and they would get busted, and and they would get thrown away. And and it, it, it's just not right on any level. And and we've known this for years and years and years. And we've known it since John Sinclair in Ann Arbor back in 1970 uh, and and ever since and many, many before John as well. But that one just happened to get a lot of publicity and a lot of attention and really helped move the the the, the position forward in, in, in a number of places to finally get to where we are today. Um, but you have to go through and you have to provide for this. You have to clean up people's records. If it's not violent, if there's no sales to kids, uh, if there's no sales directly to you know organized crime or anything like that, uh, if it's just people uh, selling ounces of marijuana, um, they should be expunged and these people should get their lives back and not be punished for the uh, activity that we can now also uh, freely participate in. So hats off to Massachusetts and New York for going in that direction and uh, other states out there that we, we need to be keeping our eye on in addition to Minnesota uh, that have a very good chance of going legal this year, are recreational are Ohio, Oklahoma, and Pennsylvania. Now, Oklahoma has one of the most outstanding adult use, uh, excuse me, medical programs in the country where basically anyone who wanted a license was able to get a license and anyone who wanted a, whether dispensary or cultivation with the idea being, we're, we're going to let capitalism run this market. We're not going to try and go through and, and decide who's better than everyone else. We'll let the market decide that. And Oklahoma, of course, the, the problem with that type of a proposal is, is even when the market is oversaturated, there's still somebody who wants in and they've had a lot of that. Um, and, and their sales have really had some problems on the uh, uh, medical side. And it'll be interesting if, if adult use is passed in that state, uh, whether they go with a similar, you know, kind of an open door program or whether they do try to legislate a little more heavily this time and not make it quite so easy for everybody to uh, to get their licenses. But, you know, the, the upshot of all of this is, is that for the most part, we're seeing positive movement uh, in more and more states across the country. And I believe that we will reach a point where maybe all 50, maybe not, maybe we'll always have a couple of holdouts. Uh, Idaho may be an old holdout forever. There may be one or two others, uh, but we'll be at a point where almost all of the states have uh, either a medical or a legal form of uh, marijuana available for their citizens. And of course, you know, when, when you get that type of uh, total support all the way across the country, uh, I think that it, it becomes almost impossible for the federal government to continue the charade and saying that we're keeping this on schedule one, we're keeping it on any controlled substance level out of a, because we need to protect the public at large because the public is just, you know, giving the government the finger right now, right and left and saying, yeah, you know, you, you keep telling us this, you keep telling us this, but look, it's, it's not that way. And, you know, more and more and more people are saying yes to it and more and more and people are enjoying it and recognizing its benefits. Um, and, and all the good that it does. And we've talked about that endlessly on this show. Uh, there's, you know, an endless num number of resources out there. Uh, we've talked about our favorites, but just start Googling and, and you'll see why marijuana really does need to be the way of the future. And we will get there as soon as enough states uh, uh, throw their full support behind it. And uh, that will hopefully bring down the remaining walls and barriers that we still have to contend with in one way or another. So that's what's going on in the marijuana world these days. Uh, as we say, you know, in the musical world, um, it's going to take some time to get over the passing of Crosby and uh, uh, Jeff Beck. It's um, uh, it, it, it's just a difficult time all the way around. There's no other way to say it. Uh, we're all getting older, and so are they. And it's just inevitable that um, we are going to reach a point where one by one, you know, we lost Jerry almost 30 years ago now. 
Um, you know, now we lost David Crosby today, but, you know, you, we can just easily sit down and name 10, 20, 50 rock musicians who we all knew, who grew up with us, who influenced us, you know, who have stopped playing or are slowing down or uh, thinking about slowing down. And, you know, they're all going to get to these points where eventually it's just not going to happen anymore. And we're just going to have the memories of them. And I want to leave you all today with um, one of my favorite uh Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young songs, even though it's not even a, a David Crosby-focused song. Uh, Stephen Stills uh, really gets the focus on this, but Crosby is part of it. It's a beautiful recording, Wooden Ships. I really, really love that song, and, and this is, happens to be from their performance at Woodstock. We've been talking about this all day. Uh, in July of 1969 at Max Yasker's Farm, uh, actually in New Bethel, New York, I believe, rather than actually in Woodstock, New York, even though it is known as Woodstock. Um, so we're going to leave you today uh, with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's performance at Woodstock of Wooden Ships. Uh, and hopefully we can all leave thinking happy thoughts about David Crosby, nice thoughts and uh, uh, wishes and prayers, of course, to his family and all the people who he influenced in this life and uh, are, are, are sad and, and mourning uh, his loss, uh, and it, as well as Jeff Beck. So um, thank you all for listening to our show today. Uh, please join us again next week. We will have more fun music and marijuana stuff to talk about. Rob will be back in full force, and uh, we will see you all then. So have a good week. Be safe. Enjoy your marijuana responsibly, and enjoy CSNY. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.